Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com. Oh, I'm all the way better. Oh, you sound good. You sound good. I don't have the, the interesting gravelly tone. And so JL still wins <laughs> uh, from a vocal perspective. So I think I just have a bigger body. That's I think that's where my voice comes from. I just have a bigger body than you do. So. <laughs> Hi, everybody. And welcome to our show, Is It Serious? A conversational podcast where we share our doctor knowledge without all the complex doctor talk. I'm Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune, my friends call me JL, and I'm an internal medicine physician based in New York City, where I practice addiction medicine at my company, Suntra Modern Recovery. In addition to being a physician, I'm also a healthcare entrepreneur and investor, and I'm passionate about making our healthcare system better for everyone. And I'm Dr. Mark Lewis. I'm a medical oncologist based in Salt Lake City, where I treat cancers of the gut. I'm also a patient myself living with a hereditary tumor syndrome, so I think about healthcare from both sides of the exam table. So before we get on topic today, we wanted to tell you about another great podcast in the Offscript Health Network called Beyond the Paper Gown. That's right. Beyond the Paper Gown inspires and informs women about the latest information about their health and healthcare choices. Host Dr. Mitzi Krakover has a very thorough multiple-part series on self-advocacy. We did a similar episode on how to be your own best health advocate, and I really think that the Beyond the Paper Gowns episode is a great companion to ours. Yeah, Dr. Krakover is very candid, and along with other medical professionals, they really get into specific risk factors and screenings, as well as tips for prevention. So, we recommend that you add Beyond the Paper Gown to your podcast list. We'll share the link in our show notes. All right. Well, great to speak with you again today, Mark, as always. How are you doing? You feeling better? Yes. So after avoiding it studiously for two years, I got COVID. Uh, the BA2.12.1 variant uh, got me, uh, broke through all my protection and, and precautions. And I have to say, man, the statistics around the transmissibility of this thing are, are crazy. It's the most contagious strain yet. There are some ongoing scientific debates about exactly how easily it's spread. You know, there's this number R0, which basically is uh-huh. uh, the number of people that one infected person can transmit to. And, and the number is approaching that of measles, which has traditionally been the most infectious uh, virus. So it's it's a, just a scary time. Got it. And how do you know you get the uh, the BA2.12.1 variant? Yeah. So based on both demography and some testing, uh, but it's definitely the okay. dominant strain at the moment that we're recording this in May of uh, 2022. 
Wow. And, and it's crazy, right? I mean, remember, I tested positive for COVID classic, as Matthew Zachary <laughs> likes to say, in March of 2020, man. It's hard to believe we're two years in and that more than two years in now and that people like you have been able to go two years without getting infected and finally get the the, the virus. I mean, I, I don't know, man. It's it's. I remember when Fauci said this is at least 18 to 24 months and it sounded to me like, wow, that's crazy. And we're here. We're like 26 months now. Well, you were there at the very beginning. It's almost a flex, like seeing you saw an indie band before they broke out and went mainstream. You know, you were there at the beginning. <laughs> I, I got to benefit from, you know, some treatments that, that you probably didn't. I took Paxlovid because I oh, do cool. have, you know, other medical conditions that put me at risk. And I have to say it was karma mm-hmm. for an oncologist because it's its most notorious side effect is horrible taste. And um, mm. a lot of the chemo I give actually causes that. We, of course, have a fancy name for it. It's called dysguzia, which is Greek for, for bad taste. Mm. And so for five mm-hmm. days, I experienced this sort of metallic feel in my mouth, which is what a lot of my patients experience. So I think that might have, might have been sort of, uh, again, justice <laughs> being delivered upon me. <laughs> but in all seriousness, man, I am so lucky having witnessed, to your point, what this country has been through in the last two years. You know, we just passed the very grim milestone of a million COVID attributable deaths. Mm-hmm. I feel so fortunate to have come through. And again, I, I feel lucky even in comparison to you because when you got this, it was, you know, right at the beginning and you didn't have access to all these therapeutics. So anyway, I'm, I'm just glad that we're, we're both through it and hopefully we can take care of those around us. All right. Sounds good. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're doing better. Your voice sounded very junky last week when we spoke. So uh, <laughs> glad to hear that you're doing better. <laughs> Had a very gravelly voice there, but it is back to normal. So thank you. So, Mark, you know, as this pandemic grinds on, you know, there have been many research studies that are that have shown that healthcare providers and we're talking about doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists and PAs are just tired and and hitting their limit. And the funny thing is, like, it it feels to me like some of these studies were coming out, you know, a year ago and we're another year into this pandemic. And, you know, uh, a, a topic that I think that people are really starting to talk about more now these days is this topic of, of burnout. So the question for today is, uh, why don't we talk a little bit more about physician burnout? And I want to say that realizing that everyone involved in patient care, so not just the healthcare providers, but like the food service people, the janitors, mm-hmm. the ward clerks, the people working in the clinics, in the hospitals, everybody has been affected during the pandemic and it's been very challenging for for everyone and uh, just before we go forward just a, a note to our listeners we will be briefly uh, touching on physician suicide in this session so just as a warning to anyone who might be sensitive to that uh, subject so why don't we get started so I think first what is burnout I think we hear burnout and I think we have an idea of what it is but uh, defined burnout is a long-term stress reaction that's marked by emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and a lack of sense of personal accomplishment. Another way to think about it is it's a combination of physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual exhaustion. And actually the model for uh, diagnosing burnout was, uh, was created by a physician by the name of Christina Maslach at UCSF in the 1970s, and she developed a uh, something that's called the Maslach Burnout Inventory. And again, it, it, it measures symptoms along the scale of exhaustion, how tired do you feel, 
depersonalization, you know, moving away from your true self and expressing cynicism and sarcasm and things like that. And then developing a lack of efficacy of feeling like you're not doing good work. Um, another uh, good definition of uh, burnout that I saw in reading was burnout is erosion of the soul that is caused mm. by deterioration of one's values, dignity, spirit, and will. And we'll talk a little bit more about that because I think that's a very important concept. But Mark, just wanted to get your thoughts. I mean, like, is burnout an issue that you guys are talking about at Intermountain? Is, um, how are you seeing this in your career? Yeah, I do think burnout's very real. The, the definition about that being a long-term stress reaction is so fascinating because you and I know that physiologically, we can mount a, a fight or flight response when we have to, but it, we're not supposed to be able to do that over a sustained period. So I think there's this physical mm-hmm, right. aspect, but also what's, what's so meaningful, I think, about these definitions is they really do think about the psychological aspect too. I've, I've heard some people use the phrase moral injury and this sense of almost mm-hmm. getting detached from your work, starting to sort of detest your work. And, and for those of us in healthcare, that's a very, very dangerous thing because again, most of us were, were drawn to this field. But yeah, no, I, I think burnout is unfortunately very real. And I think we have seen it take a huge toll on the entire healthcare workforce, as you mentioned, uh, over the last two years in particular. I'm very lucky. Intermountain is a very um, thoughtful employer, has been very proactive um, trying to mitigate uh, burnout. And a lot of that just is relying on your colleagues knowing that it doesn't all mm-hmm. fall on your shoulders. Like I mentioned at the top, I was just out with COVID. And one of the huge reassurances I had was that when I was out, sort of like a next man up philosophy, I have colleagues, coworkers who um, take care of my patients when I can't. And I think it's important for anyone out there who has been dealing with even the threat of burnout to know that you, you don't have to go it alone. And I think that's, that's one of the keys actually to getting through and sustaining yourself. And again, I think one one thing you just said there that is so important, that is so often in parentheses as we talk as doctors, you talked about being sick, right? Sick with a a virus that has killed a million people. But despite the fact that you felt terrible, your voice was a mess, you're still concerned about your patients and still concerned about their care. And I think, again, people don't necessarily understand like how prevalent that is. And to some extent, what role that plays in this burnout crisis because you know we as physicians give so much of ourselves and other providers too that that is part of the problem and we'll talk about that more in uh, in a second yeah i'll be very honest it is extremely difficult for me to switch off literally i was on vacation with my family last month and my wife looked at me uh, at this moment and she could tell i was sort of stressed when i should have been really relaxed and she said what's the matter i was like i you know, just can't stop thinking about my patients and that's not that's not a brag at all that's just a part of my psychology and again i think it's the fact that a lot of this is indefinite that it is being so difficult for people so jail as you know i love i love twitter I actually found an incredibly timely tweet <laughs> just today that i'm going to share uh-huh. with you and so uh, it is essentially a a nurse who works in hospice, who announced on Twitter just this morning her um, her resignation. So she's at nurse mm-hmm. underscore Dede, D-E-E-D-E-E. She said, I handed in my resignation. I'm taking a summer sabbatical from nursing and possibly permanent after that. And, you know, I think specifically wow. her practice is in, is in hospice. And what I find mm-hmm. so telling about that, and, and now is evident throughout healthcare with COVID, is that there is an emotional toll of repeated bereavement. And I'll be honest, I walk this line all the time in oncology. It's the balancing act of feeling enough. Because if we're completely mm-hmm. numb, then we're just robots going through the motions and, and not you know, legitimately caring about our patients. On the other hand, 
if you were completely devastated with each loss, like you would be if you lost a, you know, a true loved one, you just can't function and mm-hmm. do your job. So you have to find sort of the right balance of feeling. And I think what's so difficult is if you do that over and over and over again, um, it does wear you down. So true story, yep. I, I was recently playing one of my, my favorite songs for my kids. And so it's the song No Surprises by Radiohead. <laughs> Great band. Yeah, right. And, and this song, I, one of the reasons I love it so much is it sounds like a lullaby. It almost sounds like a nursery rhyme. But the lyrics are, mm-hmm. are pretty chilling. In fact, my, my son is 11, turned to me and said, Dad, this is, this is really sad. So the, <laughs> the lines that hit me are, um, a heart that's full up like a landfill, a job that slowly kills you, bruises that won't heal. And um, you know, for those of mm. us in medicine who sort of feel like we carry around this cumulative and ever-growing burden, um, I think that those are really resonant um, lyrics. And then there's an older quote as well. So we're going to go from Radiohead to, I believe, a 19th century vascular surgeon in France. So this guy, <laughs> René Lariche, and, and, and his quote, this is so telling, I think even now, it says, every surgeon within them a small cemetery where from time to time he goes to pray, a place of bitterness and regret mm. where he must look for an explanation for his failure. Now, I think embedded in wow. that, that this sort of graveyard metaphor is like the feeling of, oh, I, I could have done more. I'm personally responsible. Mm-hmm. I, I think the larger point during COVID, though, is that we are all bearing witness to death. And as human beings, like we, we are certainly responding to that in one way or the other, whether we acknowledge it explicitly or not. And I think that's part of what's feeding into the, the renewed concern about burnout. Burnout was a problem even before COVID, but the pandemic has just escalated it dramatically. Absolutely. And I love that LaRiche quote and I love the, the history of medicine. I mean, that's so um, so eloquent, the, the way he stated that. Burnout is a real issue. It's being referred to as an epidemic in the health professions. There are a variety of different studies that, uh, that look at this, but the estimates are anywhere from one in three physicians, 46% of physicians, 50% of physicians. And there was even one study in the survey of Americans physicians practice patterns and perspectives where they found that 78% of surveyed physicians experienced feelings of professional burnout at least sometimes, which was an increase from 2016, which is just, uh, and, and again, that's pre-pandemic. So you can only imagine what those, uh, what those numbers are like. And it's not just physicians, 20% of nurse practitioners and physicians assistants. And then depending on where you are, the feelings of burnout can be even higher. So like rural clinicians who are often like the only doctor maybe in a town or in a county are often facing really high levels of burnout. It's funny, I actually practice, as you know, in Salt Lake City, but my larger work is I cover all these states, you know, up to Montana Mm -hmm. and Wyoming. And what I'm getting at is my patients in the rural areas without in any way being, uh, I think, overreaching, they actually expect me to be on call 24-7 for them. And it's because that's what they've <laughs> seen with like the family doctors in their in their smaller towns, you know? And it just, it has really right. struck mm-hmm. me that that model has just got to be so unsustainable to feel like you're on 24-7 and can never take a break, can never step away. That's got to mm-hmm. be just exhausting in every sense. And again, you, you were talking a little bit about those burnout numbers. So you do think it's, it's worse post-pandemic, right? There's nothing that happened during the pandemic that could have made burnout better. So many physicians died. So many physicians witnessed death. So many physicians witnessed things they couldn't control. It's got to be worse post-pandemic, right? You know, if we're really being honest with ourselves, the vast majority of physicians, somewhere around 80%, were already feeling burnout at least sometimes. And, and just like with everything else, there's a difference between an infrequent feeling and one that's sustained or, or unavoidable. And I think it's very clear that there are people that are leaving 
our profession now. This has just been sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. It's just it, they, they feel like they can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and frankly, I think if you had your doubts uh, pre-pandemic, COVID will only have intensified them. My, my father actually had a quote to jail, which uh, at first seems perhaps not relevant. He was referring here to how he could endure cancer treatment. But actually, I do think there's a common thread. He said, anything is tolerable if it has an end point. And, and you invoked Fauci earlier. I think he rightly predicted that this was going to take at least 18 to 24 months. And now we are you know, even on the, on the far side of that. It's the fact that this has seemed interminable. Even the variant that I came down with is evidence of a, a current spike. We are not done with this virus. It's not done with us. And the fact that we can't predict exactly when it's going to end, that's exhausting too. That, that feeling that it's not finite, that's just going on and on, that wears people down also. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's funny that that's a great quote from your dad, because I'll always say that this notion of things being tolerable if there's an endpoint explains how I think a lot of doctors get through residency. You know, you know, mm-hmm. you're getting tortured and you're yeah. getting abused and you're getting exploited, <laughs> but you know, it's going to be over in three years or two years or whatever length your program is. But when you're out there working, you know, you're done with your training, there is no end point. Right. You know, the, and I think that that's part of what makes this hard for a lot of doctors. You know? I completely agree. It's one of the reasons you accept, say, an 80-hour work week is you know that if you work those 80 hours a week, then you get through faster. <laughs> so the, the pain is uh, is accelerated. But no, you're absolutely right. That is, the to me, that one of the there's really salient differences between training and practice is there is no time limit in practice. Mm-hmm. And again, right now, we just don't know when, when COVID's going to end. This is almost like we're making this little time capsule recording this. Uh, and, you know, the spring, summer of 2022, it'll be interesting a couple of years from now to listen back and hear about where we were really uh, in the pandemic. And as we think about causes, you know, we're physicians, so we're always trying to think about what is causing this. I think that there are a laundry list of sort of obvious causes, right? I mean, first, being a doctor is just stressful, right? And, you know, if you're dealing with sick and dying people, that's just part of the job, and that's hard. Time pressures, doctors are under tremendous productivity pressure to see more patients. And I have a friend who's an uh, internist. She describes it as being on the hamster wheel, and the hamster wheel is always Mm -hmm. getting faster and faster. Obviously, the chaos, certainly the chaos, chaotic environment of being in, let's say, in a hospital where things are changing quickly, you have no idea what's going to happen, low control over your work environment, an unfavorable organizational culture. These are all things that I think contribute. Uh, The EHR is certainly something that has been a big point of stress for a lot of doctors. And then things like work-life balance, making it, uh, you know, as you said, right, it's sometimes very difficult to separate yourself from your work. And that is definitely a cause uh, of burnout. do all those things resonate with you? They do. And, and, you know, we can joke even about the EHR, but it does create this like physical barrier between you and the patient. And it's very easy to feel like you're enslaved by the machine, like you're just there to click boxes. And, and frankly, you know, none of us go to medical school to be data entry clerks. And yet that has become, whether we want it or not, part of the job description. And I think that's another part that separates us from the actual act of patient care. It's an epiphenomenon, but it's one that can lead to depersonalization, like you said earlier. And look, I mean, I think you have the obvious sort of job stuff, but I, I think we'd be amiss or remiss a miss, a miss. I think it's a miss uh, to uh, to not mention physician culture. And I think, you know, again, being a doctor is like being a cop. It's like being a fireman. And, you know, they're very, there's a very specific culture there. There's a specific way that you're brought up when you're becoming a doctor. And I think there are a couple things that, you know, are really important. So first, 
doctors are drawn to medicine because they're often very duty-bound, conscientious people. And I think if you're at a practice where you're seeing more patients than you think you can do safely, if you don't think you're helping your patients, you know, you really take that on yourself. Like I, I'm mm -hmm. not doing my yeah. duty. And it's because yeah. there's this third, you know, these, these external forces that are preventing me from doing my duty. You know, I think that there's a lot of conditioning in medical school around being a workaholic, always being mm -hmm. a superhero, like the smartest person in the room. You know, to get into medicine, you have to have almost perfect grades. And then there's, you know, so many of us are perfectionists. And then there's this notion that like, I'm the only one who can get things done and I'm gonna put everything on my shoulder. And it really is in many ways, a, a, I think a dysfunctional culture that we're only really beginning to address. I mean, do you feel the same way? Well, I do. And it's interesting. I, so I trained at the Mayo Clinic and uh, I, I loved it. It was the most patient-centered place I possibly could have imagined doing my fellowship. But interestingly, the motto that gets drilled into you from day one, this was literally handed down from the Mayo brothers themselves, is this phrase, mm -hmm. the needs of the patient come first. On the one hand, that is an incredibly noble aspiration, but there is absolutely nothing in that sentence that suggests any sort of self-preservation instinct on behalf of the healthcare provider. On the one hand, I, I admire it, I aspire to it. I also know that if you don't at least think about your needs sometimes, that you end up, you know, again, uh, risking, you know, starting to not be able to do the job to the level that you expect yourself to be able to perform. And this is the part, JL, and thank you so much earlier for pointing out that burnout is not at all exclusive to physicians. Heaven knows that in almost every industry, including all the aspects of medicine, that people are at risk for burnout right now. I think there's another thing we have to address too, though, and it's this growing divide between the, the healthcare provider, the doctor, and healthcare administration. Mm -hmm. and, and I want to be very, very clear here. I, I realize it is crucial to have people with business savvy. I've admitted to you in earlier episodes, I don't have that. I desperately need structure in my practice. I need people that are smart to keep the lights on and, and mm -hmm. to keep this whole operation running. On the other hand, I think there is almost a divorce now between the people that give the care and the people who um, sort of oversee it. And I have to tell you personally, the reason I left my last job is I increasingly felt like the administration didn't really care about my best interests. And no matter how hard I worked, there was an expectation of ongoing growth year after year. Like literally one year I went in for mm. my annual review and I, I, I kid you not, man, I was working routinely like you know 90 to 100 hours a week. I wasn't seeing my family. Mm -hmm. I sat down and literally what they said to me is, we want you to do what you did last year, but 20% more. And wow. I thought, I don't wow. have 20% more to give. And, you know, it was almost cold and calculating. It was based on, you know, FTEs, as you and I have discussed before and RVUs and these these metrics of you know, my productivity, it wasn't really seeing me as a person who, frankly, was at the end of his rope. Again, I, I bear my former employer no ill will, but I realized I just can't keep doing 20% year after year. Like That's just not something I can sustain. So that was the main reason that I left. I love this institution, but I don't think that my best interests are being considered here. I think a very important thing to point out and people forget is you have these health systems that are quote unquote nonprofits, but you know, there are lots of people at those facilities, at those, at those systems who really care about profit. And at the end yeah. of the day, you know, they, they set targets. And then as those targets work their way down to the people who do the work, like yourself, somebody above you said, Hey, we need to grow 20% more this year. And now they're asking a doctor who's already giving it a hundred percent just by showing up every right. day, you're giving it a hundred 
20% right. to give another 20%. That's absurd, right? So, you know, I, I think we have to remind people is that, you know, there's doctors and then there is the big corporation, which is, you know, where's the cloth or where's the, the cape of a nonprofit, but is in many ways a profit-seeking organization uh, that tries to manage doctors like they're widgets and doctors aren't widgets. I think if you feel disconnected from the business that is is paying you and setting your targets, I think that is going to lead also to some seeds of dissatisfaction being sown. You know, a very important question uh, to ask is, you know, a lot of people say, hey, so what? Who cares if these doctors are are, are getting burned out? You know, that we'll just train more doctors. And I, I think we have to highlight sort of the micro and the, the macro issue. So for doctors on a micro level, burnout has been shown to impair their attention. So just think about a doctor writing a prescription uh, for a medication. It impairs memory, so your ability to remember history and physical details, and it decreases your executive function, so your ability to make hard decisions about what treatment to provide. So that's just on the doctor level. But if you think about on the more macro level, we already have a physician shortage, right? Like how long do you have to wait to get a a new internist appointment in the United States forever? So, you know, it's gonna reduce access to care, if doctors are retiring, if doctors are using substances and have to go away to treatment, if doctors are unfortunately committing suicide. Uh, And there's a crazy stat that I saw that one in five doctors intend to leave practice and suicidal ideation is two times more common in doctors. So, you know, I think people have to understand this is not just like this doctor over there in a practice who's doing his own thing. That doctor is tied to you and your access to care, your quality of care, your patient safety. And I think the most important thing is I think the doctors who are most sensitive to burnout are often the most empathic doctors. You know, they're the ones who are the most sensitive and the ones who are most able to emotionally connect with patients. And I think if you have this burnout phenomenon forcing out those doctors, you end up with the doctors who aren't so good at the emotional, social emotional stuff. And again, that's just bad for healthcare. You know, when I was so committed to going into oncology, my wife actually told me, she said, Mark, you're a very soft-hearted person. I think you're too tender to do this. You know, she just knew I was going to get sad over and over and over again. And she's right. I, I am. Like, I, it hurts every time I lose a patient. On the other hand, if I'm not feeling that way, like I said earlier, I don't think I'm, you know, properly doing my job. It's it's how you find the balance in a manner that's not pathologic and in a manner that's sustainable. Physicians can can face stigma and, and professional penalties if they seek appropriate care and treatment, if they self-acknowledge burnout and related mental health concerns, I don't know if in the addiction mm-hmm. space, if you're familiar with this doctor called Adam Hill, mm-hmm. he's a remarkable uh, doctor who wrote a book, I think it's called A Long Walk Out of the Woods. And basically it's about his recovery from alcoholism and just how much he suffered professionally for admitting, for, for actually speaking up and saying, listen, I have a problem, I need help. You know, mm-hmm. everyone wants to avoid being labeled, quote unquote, the impaired physician, uh, which leads us again to struggle with a lot of these things on our own and not get the the very health care, actually, that we're helping to provide. It's this awful sort of um, self-reinforcing loop where the more this becomes taboo in our profession, the more people are actually going to leave the profession. Absolutely. And, and, you know, um, my uh, business partner at Central Modern Recovery, he used to be a commercial pilot. He used to fly for uh, Continental. So, you know, the guy, you know, the guy who's flying the plane. And um, this is a huge issue with pilots because the FAA 
is not very progressive. So, you know, if you're a pilot and you come out and you say that you're depressed or you have a substance use disorder, you know, they really treat you very badly and it creates strong disincentives for people to actually seek out care and it creates dangerous situations because you have people who are potentially impaired who are still flying or who are still operating. And, uh, you know, there's a risk to the public as a result of that. Oh, man. Uh, and, and maybe what a great example we can talk about is is uh, Dr. Lorna Breen. So Dr. Lorna Breen was an ER doc at New York Presbyterian Hospital, a satellite hospital called the Allen Pavilion. And I have actually a pretty strong connection to this story because during my residency, I did six months of my residency at the Allen Pavilion. The Allen Pavilion is a small hospital, northern tip of Manhattan. It is literally the northernmost building in Manhattan. Uh, it's so far away, we used to call it the Alien Pavilion. <laughs> And Dr. Breen was an ER doc uh, at that hospital and was working uh, during the pandemic, actually got COVID herself, recovered after like a week and a half of self-quarantine and went right back to work. Again, just a a sign of how committed she was and then had a little bit of break time, went to see her family in Virginia and then committed suicide. And, uh, you know, you you just think about like, wow, this is somebody who was doing such good work and she, she just ended up killing herself. And Mark, I mean, there was there was something about her in Vanity Fair, right? Yeah. So at this piece, again, it's so interesting, Jail, when, when you have people outside our profession kind of look in, and in this case, journalists, and you wouldn't necessarily think it would be in Vanity Fair, but they wrote this incredible piece. So first of all, they had this quote from her dad, which just chilled me. And, and he said, she tried to do her job and it killed her. And then the, the journalists themselves sort of reached the conclusion that what's to blame here is, and this is a verbatim quote, a professional culture that is often disinclined to take its own mental health seriously. And it's almost like, you know, the quote from the Bible, physician, heal thyself. Like we really do need to turn a very uh, harsh light back upon physicians and support them, not not stigmatize them when, when they're having struggles like this. Because I, I've known uh, from my own training program, a physician who committed suicide, uh, again, mm. dealing with the stressors of, of the pandemic. It's been horrible, horrible to see. When I was a, a resident, we had a guy in, in a resident a year ahead of me. Um, this is all pre-pandemic, obviously, uh, who committed suicide as well. And that just, you know, uh, it just is so shocking to hear uh, because often there's there's no sign. It just comes out of nowhere. Yeah. But what I will say is that Dr. Breen's death was not in vain. Her mm-hmm. death inspired uh, a group of people and a group of uh, lawmakers to support and sponsor the Lorna Breen Healthcare Protection Act, which was actually signed into law just in March, March 18th, 2022. And it supports mental and behavioral health for providers, supports suicide and uh, burnout prevention, and supports a bunch of research programs. So it at least feels like we're making some progress here. I think maybe it took the pandemic for people to realize uh, how much of an issue this this is, Uh, but it does feel like we are making some progress here. And, uh, you know, I think Dr. Breen lives on in, in her legislation and will hopefully, you know, live on in the help that she provides providers who need it. You know, it's wonderful uh, to hear that um, even though she's gone, um, you know, the sort of awful uh, legacy of her death, there there may be some silver lining there for for the rest of us. All right. So with that, uh, I think we had a great discussion so far. So why don't we uh, take it to a break now? And then when we come back, we can talk a little bit more about our personal experiences. um, And we can also talk a little bit more about solutions uh, to the burnout problem. Sure. Sure. 
CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. All right, Mark. So uh, good to be back. And I think before we go forward, I just wanted to acknowledge the fact that we did talk about a, a difficult subject there, the death of uh, Lorna Breen. Yeah. And uh, for anybody who's listening who might need some help, so I'd like to provide the National Suicide Prevention Number. That's one 800 273-8255. And uh, as we've said in a previous episode, you know, if there's anyone you're ever worried about, don't be afraid to ask them. Asking somebody if they're concerned about suicide is not going to make them do it. Right. And if anything, you can find somebody that you can help who um, might benefit from being able to talk to a professional. So I, I think I wanted to talk a little bit about my personal experience, and I think I'd frame it first by saying that I did finish my residency uh, more than 20 years ago now. I finished my residency in 2020. But, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, when I was training, man, there was no concern for resident well-being. I mean, I think there was some lip service paid to it, but during my whole three years of training in internal medicine, there was really only one chance that we ever got to talk as a group about sort of how we were feeling. You know, there was a, a intern retreat, I think in like the fall of my internship year. And I, I can't tell you how helpful that was. Mm. And I could never figure out why they wouldn't do more. Uh, but I think, you know, at institutions like, you know, really your top tier ivory tower institutions, I think in some ways, you know, the, inst the, the leadership is not good. You know, they're, they're great physicians, but they're often not like the best people and their leadership skills aren't great. And they don't often model healthy behavior. You know, definitely when I was a resident, I, there was this feeling like, you know, if you had to punch out, let's say I had a friend who was in the Air Force, used that term a lot, that, you know, punching out was, uh, you were a loser. And mm -hmm. going back to what you were saying before, that doctor who had expressed being an alcoholic alcoholic that negatively impacted his career. I think that was a big concern for us as residents as well. And I'll be very honest, I don't often say this, but in many ways for me, being an entrepreneur and having an innovative healthcare delivery service is a way for me to say, I want to create my own structure where I get to play by my mm -hmm. own games. And, you know, I, I, I don't want to criticize your job. You do great work, but I don't want to be in a situation or that other job you were in where people are telling me I have to increase my productivity 20%. Yeah. You know, I don't work for you. I work for myself. And I think uh, in many ways, I, I when you're an entrepreneur, you have many days where you ask yourself, like, why am I doing this? <laughs> <laughs> but I think one of the things that I've done is I've been able to have the flexibility that I want to have, the ability to spend an hour with a new patient, 30 minutes with a follow-up. And I, I think that makes a huge difference, not only for me, but obviously for my patients as well. Well, listen, I actually think that takes a lot of bravery, JL. So I take my hat off to you. And again, I'm very pleased with my current employer, but, but you're right. I mean, we talk a lot about um, autonomy in respect to patients. I think what you're getting at is autonomy as a, as a doctor. Uh, you wanting to feel like the locus of control is at least you know partly yours, and 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 I love the fact that you've thought about how do I cultivate a system where I can have more time with my patients if I need it. I think that's awesome. So you know I, I have a couple of thoughts. One is when I was in fellowship, the chairman of medicine convened all the doctors at Mayo, and I'll never forget what he said to them. This was in an open forum. He said, "You should not be sending me emails at two in the morning," and his point was <laughs> a a workplace culture where you were literally up 
that late sending sending work related correspondence is not a healthy one. I just thought it was really cool that someone mm-hmm. at again, like you said, a top tier institution was trying to model some space, some separate piece away from the job. And I got to be honest with you, there's mm-hmm. another part of this that is really starting to uh, grate on me, and it's the notion that again, we are just these quantifiable units, these sort of worker bees, if you will, and then everything about us can be measured. So mm-hmm. there was a study that came out in, in JAMA Surgery last year, and, and I realize the authors may have been very well-intentioned, but it just completely rubbed me the wrong way. So I'll actually read you just a couple sentences from the abstract. So this was all about grit. Grit as something that can be mm-hmm. quantified. And so they said grit was measured using a short grit scale, where scores range from one, not at all gritty, to five, extremely gritty. Residents with higher grit <laughs> scores were 47% less likely to experience burnout, 39% less likely to have thoughts of attrition, and 42% less likely to support suicidal ideation. And so what I'm getting at is, again, this may have been very well meant, but it just comes across, again, as just turning us into these data points rather than viewing us as as human beings. And you know, my ultimate conclusion reading that paper, which, again, may not have been their point, but was my takeaway was, oh, these residents should just be grittier, like just be better, be be more resilient. And that's just such a, a an awful sort of circular logic. I don't think it's necessarily something that's entirely within our power. Yes. And, uh, you know, I, I do a lot of consulting with startups that are interested in doing, you know, interesting uh, healthcare delivery concepts. You know, healthcare is like the hottest uh, tech uh, investment play right now. And one of the things I always have to tell entrepreneurs is that if you're going to be dealing with doctors, you're not managing robots. The You're managing doctors. And the truth is doctors are closer to artists than they are to robots. So just imagine, you know, if you're going to scale something up, you're managing a bunch of Pablo Picassos, you know, a bunch of Salvador Dali's, a quirky, <laughs> brilliant people who do something very special. They're not going to act just like a robot and work 100 hours and say, thank you very much for the for the pleasure. They don't do that. That's not the way we work. We are human beings at the end of the day, human beings doing very human work that is actually very difficult to get a machine to do in our stead. Yeah, I, I agree with you. We, we can't be reduced to an assembly line. And again, it's not really because we are necessarily that special. It's because that the patient care itself has to be so individualized. And, and it's funny, GL, I realize that some people listen to this, they might think, oh man, these doctors are so self-pitying. As I told you in an earlier episode about my family, I'm actually not that many generations removed from people who worked in the coal mines in Wales. And so I always have it in the back mm-hmm. of my mind that, yes, my job is cushy in the sense that I am not doing highly dangerous manual labor. On the other hand, I think what you're getting at is that not all of this can be automated. And that means the way that we are viewed by our you know, business superiors, if you will, that also has to take into account our individual nature and the fact that we are also taking care in turn of individuals. You just really hit a hot button with me. You, your business superiors, that drives me insane <laughs> to hear that. I think doctors should be in many more leadership yep. positions. And again, like you, you can't really think about managing a healthcare enterprise unless you've been part of it, at least in some ways, delivering some care at some time. Maybe you don't need to be a full-on board, triple board certified doctor, but you, know, you should have had some experience taking care of patients if you're gonna be directing people who take care of patients.
And in terms of solving the problem, I mean, you know, there's a lot of discussions around solutions. You know, I live in a world where, uh, you know, I, I deal with a lot of startups that are trying to solve these problems with the technology. I can honestly say that in my history as an investor, which goes back, you know, 15 years, I have never seen a technology that makes things better for doctors, literally not one. And every technology that I've seen generally makes, you know, a doctor's life more complicated, makes, you know, you know, steals more of the doctor's attention. You know, it's... Uh, you know, unfortunately, I don't think technology is the solution at this point. I think it's a lot more around specific interventions around like reducing, you know, productivity metrics. I think that's a big one. Giving doctors more time, as I was saying, so that they can feel like they're doing a good job, giving doctors more clinical control. So making doctors less of, um, you know, cookie cutter, you know, clinical guidelines, following people and giving doctors more discretion. I think having more work-life balance is important and more communication and improving workflows with with your colleagues. I think that those are all big things. Anything else, Mark, you think that we could be doing to reduce uh, burnout? Yeah, well, one thing that I, I have actually found incredibly helpful and uh, reassuring is I'm actually allowed to document. If I deviate from a guideline, I'm allowed to explain myself. I'm not just immediately penalized or slapped on the wrist. And I, I think, again, that, that makes me feel good as, uh, as a provider that my own judgment uh, is being uh, taken into account. So that's very helpful. And then I'm sorry if I triggered you with the phrase business superiors, Shell. Um, I guess one thing for people to think about, and I'll say this particularly to anyone listening that might be coming out of training and um, thinking about their first job, this actually gets discussed a lot on social media. And I think that you know, that the sort of generations that are coming behind us, jail through residency and even fellowship, are realizing it's not just about the number on the paycheck. It's about the intangible benefits. When you look at an organizational chart of whomever you're going to work for, are there physicians at least near the top who can provide input to the organization about, you know, how something should be run? What's a reasonable expectation for a physician employee? I think that's probably important. And then also I would think about things like protected time. Is that, are they just sort of paying lip service to that? Or do you really have time when you can be away from your job? And then finally, as I mentioned earlier, think about your practice environment and are you going to have the ability to share clinical duty with other people. I work in a practice where there are eight oncologists and we try to be as equitable as possible. And like you said earlier, I was still worrying about my patients when I was out with COVID, but I also knew that they were getting good care from my colleagues who could sort of pick it up as a continuous thread of treatment delivery. So these are all really, really important aspects for docs to think about. And it goes far beyond just the, the dollar sign of your salary. Yes. At the end of the day, there are some real health systems issues here that contribute to this, right? That are not easy to fix. So, you know, just the healthcare system is complex to begin with. Having, you know, a million different type of insurance plans is what we have in this country. And that's a huge contributor. Unfortunately, we can't fix that tomorrow, but that's something we have to think about. Legal risk, right? You know, doctors, uh, you know, again, if I could tell you how much my friends who have been sued just one time for malpractice have been impacted by that and how that's contributed to burnout. That's something that we have to deal with. I don't know how much appetite we have for, you know, dealing with uh, malpractice litigation, but that is a big issue. And then finally, just, you know, oh, the overall efficiency of these organizations, you know, as organizations get bigger, they just get less effective. And, you know, a, a big hospital is like a big factory. And sometimes that big factory is inefficient and the doctors get hurt by that. 
But I think the last thing that is probably the most important thing, doctors have to be able to get back to a place where they have more autonomy so that they can do the thing that they think is right, have the opportunity to develop competence and feel like they are becoming competent in their work, and then a relatedness to their fellow colleagues, to their patients that they serve. And I think if we can move in that direction, we can move in a world where burnout is less of a problem. But again, as we've said before, it is really an epidemic right now and something that we have to address because it impacts everybody, not just the doctors and allied health providers who are dealing with burnout. Yeah, an epidemic that's been accelerated by the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So we'll kind of close in a second, Jill. Just in terms of resources, I would encourage people to look both inside their institution and online. So inside many organizations, there are employee assistance programs, EAPs, that can confidentially offer you support. And I guess I would just encourage all of our docs who are listening out there not to feel like they are either above or below that level of support, that they really view themselves as worthy of those resources if they need them. And then online, our boss, our business superior at Offscript suggested, Matt Zachary, (laughs) (laughs) suggested uh, this website, clinicianburnoutfoundation.org. And we'll put a link there in the show notes too. So um, Jill, before we go, I know we sometimes do mean tweets. I'm actually going to call out what I think are some relevant tweets. And this was really Mm -hmm. interesting to me. Sometimes the reason I love an online conversation so much is it lets me think about something in a completely different way. So here, there is a word that has become controversial in healthcare to the point that some people think it is being weaponized against healthcare workers, and that word is calling. So this is fascinating to me. So I'll start with a tweet from a nurse. Her name is at Knight Maurer. She said, nursing is not a calling. It is a career. Pay nurses better for their work, make our workplace safer. And what she's getting at there is sometimes when healthcare workers are uh, lobbying uh, for a better workplace conditions, they're told to accept the current environment because it is their calling. And so Mm -hmm. I think what she's getting at is that if that's forced upon you as as rhetoric, that feels inauthentic. Mm -hmm. And that feels, again, like management trying to get you to accept something. Uh, that you really shouldn't be accepting. And then interestingly, there was another uh, tweet, this time actually from someone leaving residency, at Amar Gill, with I think four L's. Mm. Unpopular opinion, residency truly is just a job. It can be a meaningful job, absolutely. But the idea of medicine being a calling is actually very harmful. It perpetuates the expectation that we shouldn't stand up against mistreatment at the hands of the collective graduate medical education system. And actually, I wrote back and I said, you, parentheses, and only you, can decide if it is a calling. The word shouldn't be weaponized to justify unfair, unsafe work conditions. Even in my current post-training job, I have to operate in an imperfect system to deliver patient care, but the latter is truly my professional lifeblood. So what I'm getting at here is just like you know, we're trying to respect autonomy in patients, we need to respect autonomy in physicians. And no one gets to tell you that it's a calling. That has to be something that you feel. And so don't let anybody use that word to force you to accept you know, a workplace environment that is going to burn you out. And one thing, you know, I want to speak really into the microphone here. So I talk about the brotherhood and the sisterhood of medicine. So to my brothers and and sisters in healthcare, whether you're a doctor or other healthcare provider, you are not alone, okay? This has been a particularly tough two years. If you're feeling tired, that's a normal reaction. There's nothing wrong with you. And if you need help, reach out. You can reach out to us here on the podcast. We've provided some other resources, but don't wait, right? If you're feeling burned out, get help. Find somebody who can help you. You are not alone. Amen. All right. 
So that's our show for today. I want to thank everybody for listening. Um, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can email us at isitserious at offscript.com, script with no T, or call us at Offscript Health and leave a message. We might just use your question on the show. Our number is 855-AUDIO66, and that's 855-283-4666. You can also find us on social media. I'm active on LinkedIn, and my Twitter handle is at Jean-Luc Neptune, J-E-A-N-L-U-C-N-E-P-T-U-N-E. Yours sounds so much more sophisticated than mine. I'm at Mark Lewis, MD. <laughs> and please remember that while we love talking about medicine and healthcare, this show does not provide medical advice. If you have any questions, make sure you ask your doctor. All right. So take care, everybody. And please join us next time for Is It Serious? <laughs> That's all for now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social and tell all of your friends to listen. Do you have a medical question or concern? Ask us by leaving a message at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-283-4666. Or you can email us at isitserious at offscript.com. And we might just use your question in a future show. Is It Serious is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. Our hosts are Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune and Dr. Mark Lewis. Our researcher is Emma Gomez and our sound mixer is Kyle Moore. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.